So hi everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us uh, once again to our second panel in the first virtual industrial real estate conference uh, 2021 uh, here with uh, Point. My name is Adil Levitas, co-founder and CEO uh, of Ferropoint. Um, I'm excited to have this uh, second panel uh, dealing with last mile industrial real estate and financing environment. Uh, we got really special guests here, um, so I'll be happy to introduce them. I'll start with um, Miss Allison Gauthier. Allison is the Senior Vice President and Team Leader at Citizens Bank. She currently manages the institutional data center and the REIT teams. These teams comprise of over 5.5 billion uh, portfolio covering top tier commercial real estate sponsors in the private and public sectors. She has been at Citizens Bank since 2014. Prior to joining Citizens, Allison was a Senior Vice President at Bank of America on the institutional real estate team, where she managed a $1 billion loan portfolio. Our second uh, guest is Mr. Nick Murphy. Nick is a vice president <laughs> in the Secured Industrial Equity Sales Group. In this role, he is responsible for the disposition of logistics assets with a focus on regional and national portfolios. Since joining Israel Secured in 2017, the group has closed more than 700 million square feet of industrial real estate. Our third guest and my dear friend and partner, Mr. Ohad Porat, Ohad is the CIO of Fairpoint, where he's responsible for the company's investment array, including leadership of the investment strategy, overseeing acquisitions, leasing, property management, and the go-to-market strategy across multiple markets. Ohad has closed over 100 real estate transactions, totaling more than 15 million square feet and over 1 billion in transaction value. Uh, Vadim Greenberg, uh, our last guest. Vadim is a senior vice president of acquisition at Fairpoint. In his role, he is responsible for the company's acquisition array, including execution of the acquisition strategy across multiple markets. Previously, Vadim served as a real estate acquisition manager at Harel Insurance and Finance, where he was responsible for a deployment process of over $2 billion in equity across major real estate sectors in the US, Europe, and Israel. Guys, I'm really happy to have you with us. So, Dick, why don't you start uh, uh, <laughs> with you? You got a great take uh, on the market and sure. maybe give us a little bit of your view of how uh, the industrial sector weathered 2020 uh, as a whole. Yeah, happy to. Um, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so 2020, yeah, I think everyone realizes was a, a pretty strange year and um, the industrial sector, really like all sectors, um, once, once COVID and, and Corona happened, um, saw, saw some short-term, uh, saw a short-term pause, but, um, industrial ended up being the main beneficiary of, of, uh, what was that, that strange year? Um, we ended up the year with 225 million square feet of absorption. So that's, you know, that's close to all-time records, um, which is, that, and that's 10% higher than 2019. 2019 was, was obviously also a very big year. So that gives you a sense for the type of tenant demand. A lot of that was, was uh, sort of back-end loaded. Um, you know, not a, lot of hap not a lot happened in terms of leasing velocity in the first half of the year for obvious reasons. <clears throat> and then, you know, with people stuck inside, um, they, they look to e-commerce and they increase their adoption. So, so a lot of folks who never used e-commerce before, whether that was, you know, typically the older generation that didn't come up with it, they were forced to use it. And so a lot of sales, which traditionally happens in a more, you know, traditional sense, going to grocery stores and CVS, that sort of thing, shifted online. Um, and so that, um, 
there's a there's a piece that Morgan Stanley put together that that I reference often, but um, based on their their map, that uh, the the pandemic pulled for e-commerce adoption two years. So if we had stayed on our normal trajectory uh, b- before that happened, um, it would have taken us two years to get to where we are today. Uh, now we've given some of that back as some of the restrictions have loosened up, but. If you look at how we ended the year and some of the stats that I quoted, it was it was the biggest Q4 ever. So it was 100 million square feet that got absorbed in you know that three months. And again, say it again, it was 225 million square feet um, across the across the U.S. industrial sector. Um, e-commerce is like I referenced was driving a lot of that, but um, that's actually only about 20 percent of that absorption. So. There's a diversification in terms of, of who's taking space. And, um, you know, we, uh, by all accounts, uh, foresee that continuing into 2021. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, I, I did read, um, you know, most things uh, as well. And um, I remember one of the things that uh, e-commerce um, share out of total retail changed from about 15% to 21%. That's about a 40% uh, increase. And you said two years pulling forward. I saw uh, some places saying five and seven years pulling forward. And some of those uh, uh, physical stores that were shut down are not going to be uh, reopened. And therefore, some of this trend is really going to continue with us. Um, so I guess my, my question to you is how much of that tenant demand in the market uh, during the second half of 2020 did you see related to e-commerce? And, and then what happens to to those tenants that are not yet to e-commerce. So we're going to see some, some soften, softening in the market because some of those tenants uh, are just not enjoying the e-commerce boom. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that 20% of overall absorption being e-commerce, I think that's a pretty good proxy just for, for second half demand. Um, because, I mean, there's obviously some carryover from 19 in the early 20, uh, 2020. For absorption, but a lot, like I said, a lot of the a lot of the absorption was back end loaded. So no one was really taking space March through um, June. Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, Amazon grabbed a lot of space in between that time, um, as as, as um, obviously everyone was stuck inside and needing to shop online. But you know, I think that's a pretty good proxy. Twenty about twenty percent um, attributable to e commerce, and then you've got a, a lot of other industries like home improvement, um, you know, like healthcare that, uh, sort of similar, you know, similar where they saw an uptick in demand and they needed to take space quickly. Got it. Well, Alison, you had a pretty uh, interesting, uh, uh, position during COVID. Uh, we had, um, a credit facility, uh, uh, at the time, uh, which you're well, well aware of, uh, um, by chance. Um, but it was not an easy uh, way to figure out what's really happening in the market March through June. And from our standpoint, I remember uh, banks didn't really know what they should do next, how selective they should be, uh, and interest rates really dropping, and how should they you know, change the rates, if any. I mean, how did you see that process March through June and really change your strategy um, you know, as a commercial lender? I think, um, well, at least I can speak for what citizens did. We executed on any term sheets we had in the market. So we, we pulled through on, even if it was a multifamily construction, whatever, anything that everybody thought was going 
crazy. We we closed. So that kept us busy March and April, May. And then we started thinking, okay, what is going to work? Where are the opportunities? Let's focus primarily on our existing sponsors, which is what a lot of lenders did. Uh, those sponsors that have weathered <clears throat> storms before. And then we also looked at, um, because we do a lot of data center lending, we knew the uh, the growth in industrial was was going to be there. So we decided cash flowing industrial assets. Um, we do a fair amount of industrial pools and portfolios and have always, those have always outperformed everything as much as they're a little more work. So we were able to target some cap- capital that way also. Mm-hmm. So did you keep uh, lending to uh, GPs that you had a very good relationship with, even though uh, if they were in a uh, lesser, uh, I said in sectors that didn't weather it as good as data center and industrial? Um, if there was no market risk. So mm-hmm. if it was buying an existing multifamily building that was already leased and the collections had been strong, then we would continue doing that. Um, if it was a corporate facility, yes. We wouldn't take any lease-up risk, and we're still very hesitant to take that. So I guess it's safe to say for a GP um, in, a, in a crisis, it's not the best time to look for new banking relationships. It can be a uh, challenge. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're in a sector that uh, you got some, uh, you know, real headwinds to uh, to fight with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll turn the question to uh, uh, to you, Ohad. And um, I mean, during that, uh, during this period, um, you know, in, in Fairpoint, we did buy, um, I know, 30 or 40 industrial warehouses. Uh, and I mean, how do, how do you see from your standpoint when did you think it's the right time to go back into the market because there's more opportunity than risk? How did you perceive that? Well, that's a good question. I think that uh, um, back in March, when, uh, when we started to hear about uh, the pandemic effects, that is uh, some lockdowns and uh, uh, stay-at-home uh, orders, then we started to feel, okay, how the economy is going to react to people actually sitting at home and not uh, uh, committing uh, economic uh, commerce to a certain extent. Um, how will our tenants be able to endure uh, uh, these closures or these lockdowns or shutdowns or whatever? So we monitor during March and April pretty closely uh, how our tenants are doing. We had at that time about 500 tenants in our portfolio and we were talking to them, at least to the major tenants in our portfolio on a daily basis, trying to hear, how are you guys doing? Uh, what's your projections? How do you see your uh, decrease in sales? Uh, and I think within 60 days or so, uh, it was it was not clear, but you started to see the trend that the industrial users and the e-commerce especially, and also the 3PLs, which are also doing e-commerce to a certain extent, uh, some, of, some of them at least, uh, they're not losing any business whatsoever, but more so they were starting to talk about, hey, can I get more space? Or I think uh, I'm seeing some shifts in the market. And at that point, you know, it was still a giant haze and question mark of where the market is going. But we started to feel comfortable that maybe, although uh, uh, it's not clear how things are going to end up, uh, it looks like the industrial sector is going to be more resilient than we thought initially. Uh, and, and this is kind of a where we, I think we took a two-month pause somewhere there in March and April, but then in May, we've started to gear up. Okay, let's see. Uh, uh, let's try to open up again for uh, acquisitions and try to see, not necessarily the entire market was doing the same, you know, sellers were trying to kind of figure out where they want to be. And, and uh, like Allison said, uh, having 
a deal with a, uh, with a uh, Lisa Priest, something that uh, we were very reluctant to do uh, at that time, even though we thought there's some positive uh, um, uh, tailwinds there as well. Uh, and, but it was kind of a, a little bit of a waiting game that kind of a, turned out to be, to be fine. And I think coming June, July, we've started to see, okay, this thing is really uh, uh, progressing and, and it kind of uh, uh, the effects on e-commerce and logistics demand in general is actually growing. Um, some of the deals were only materializing, like, like Nick said, only in Q4 or late Q3. Uh, and we've seen it also. I think Q4 for Fairbank was also record, uh, a record uh, uh, quarter with about $75 million worth of uh, acquisitions. Um, but that was kind of, uh, from our take, how it kind of uh, progressed uh, during this year. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I remember when, uh, uh, when that uh, hit during March, uh, beginning of April, we decided to open a war room, a virtual war room, where we looked at collections and tenants' uh, uh, status on a daily basis. And uh, we were waiting to see every day. We came on the call and we were waiting to really hear bad things, you know, because we didn't know how that's going to end up. And we saw the resiliency of the tenants. And then we looked at, into uh, uh, publicly traded REITs. Uh, and saw that at the end of the quarter, collections were 96 to 99. And we saw that uh, our portfolio, which is more consistent of last mile, was the same kind of collections. And we thought, this is not your ideal uh, crisis. This is something else. It affects uh, our businesses uh, not the way you think, you know, even though most of the last mile uh, tenants are not, are not uh, accredited style Amazon, uh, but still you saw the strength of, of collection. And somewhere, I think, uh, as you said, mid-May, uh, starting June, we started to understand cap rates are not going to rise. And if they do, it's going to be really uh, in a really uh, a low uh, um, change. And from the other hand, interest rates are really falling down. So your spread, even without any change in cap rates, is becoming really attractive. And there was that specific deal I remember in Memphis uh, and that, uh, that the cap rate was really attractive. And, and there was like a 550 basis points spread. And we said, you know what, pandemic or not pandemic, this is a deal that has to be done in terms of safety margins. And, uh, and as that happened, uh, uh, you know, and, and just like Allison said, we didn't think about opening new markets at that time. We said, okay, if we have plans to go now into Jacksonville or, or Louisville, that's not going to happen now. I mean, we need to make sure uh, that we can take the risk on markets that we know uh, how's the tenant demand going and the transaction volume and the liquidity. And, and so that was where we, uh, uh, we took it to. Um, Vadim, I'm interested uh, uh, to hear, maybe you can share from your experience this in 20, uh, 2020, how did you see, if any, underwriting changing and, and maybe sellers' expectations as you probably, as I know, you talk to uh, dozens of, uh, of sellers uh, each month. I mean, did you see that COVID sentiment rolls into lower prices or, I mean, how did you feel that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that there was a very big change in the uh, in the pricing uh, and also in the available capital during uh, uh, this year. It started obviously every everyone were concerned at the beginning and uh, there was uncertainty to some extent. But then once uh, uh, the industrial sector uh, came strong out of that uh, 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 pandemic. Uh, we saw a lot of other players 
that weren't uh, active before on the industrial side and were mainly active on the office side and the hotel side and, and the retail side, uh, starting to uh, uh, bid on industrial deals. And we find ourselves with competition with new players <laughs> that weren't there before. And, and, and not before two years ago, weren't there before like one month ago. Mm-hmm. And that drives pricing uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, it decreased cap rates, obviously, because uh, some of those players uh, wanted to try and penetrate to a very competitive market and were, uh, uh, and he could support that, I guess, from his side. But those buyers were willing to pay higher price, even above market, just to get access to the product uh, because they felt that once they gained that access, uh, the, the, the next deals will be will be easy, but <laughs> I can tell you that it's usually not the case. It's uh, it's never get easy, and uh, uh, but definitely much more competitive than it was before. Yeah, and I can jump. I can yeah, jump in ahead, there real quick. Um, that's I mean that's absolutely true. But a lot of what's happened on the capital market side is think about if you're an investor in uh, in real estate and you can invest in major food groups, office, retail, hotel industrial, multifamily, a lot of those sectors save for more opportunistic style of capital are off limits. Like you're not going to go buy a, a cordial in office unless it's leased for 15 years to, to Amazon. So that shifted a lot of the capital from those other sectors. And they're now really just focused on <laughs> industrial, like all types of industrial and selectively multi um, depending on market and location. So that's driven, that's driven a lot of you know, real estate capital into the space. We're even seeing um, groups like infrastructure funds that have a really low cost of capital. Logistics is obviously a, it, it marries in well with what they're trying to do, um, you know. Infrastructure yeah, funds, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's new to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, yeah, we're having a lot of conversations with groups like that that have raised, raised money in that sector, but, um, you know, logistics, obviously, you're, you're directly tied to infra- infrastructure like the interstates and, you know, maybe a building that's rail served or tied to the mm-hmm. port. And so it's just the upshot is there's just a lot more money um, chasing basically the same amount of deals in the industrial space. So there's supply, demand imbalance that's driving cap rates are really just I mean, it's, we, we talk in terms of cap rates, but it's really just returns in general are coming down in the space um, and it's supported by a lot of those operating fundamentals, right? We had a, a recession in 2020 and it was one of the biggest years on record for industrial. So you look at that and you see what it does for rent growth um, and people are starting to continue to push push chips in on industrial. Um, and then the deem, I, I think you were touching on this, but there's also new operators. I mean, that's like the, the true capital, uh, you know, call it more LP style capital. There's there's operators that have only done office their whole careers and they're seeing they've got a little bit more time on their hands, right? That the market's not as liquid and their, um, their capital partners are telling them, Hey, we are trying to grow an industrial or, or get a mm-hmm. footprint. And so we're seeing more people pop up and spend more time in the space. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, Nick's correct. There's way more, interest in industrial. Um, it was typically, we would usually see the life insurance companies would do the large existing assets because they could 
priced so much more competitively than a bank and the local banks would do the smaller flex office. Um, it just didn't fit the bank's capital mark, um, capital structure. But now more of our customers are looking at industrial. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little more, you know, the banks, that's where they can put their money because it's performed and it continues to perform. And I think with e-commerce and other factors, it will, I think the mid to longer term is also positive on industrial. So. Got it. do you wanted to refer to? Yeah, there's one deal that may be worth mentioning that uh, we were engaged in in March, I think. Uh, Nick, you uh, you brought us this deal that was an industrial portfolio in, in Cincinnati. It, it genuinely just came to us by Nick beginning of March, really the worst time ever to buy multi-tenant industrial. Also, we value the multi-tenant industrial uh, uh, um, um, portfolio. And we were engaging at that time at about $38 million, And I just got it. I just saw it yesterday uh, published that it was sold last week for about $51 million. And nothing materially wow. changed in occupancy there. Um, but I think it kind of showed uh, everything that, that, that we are talking about. One, it showed the increased demand. I think the buyer is a, is a fresh new industrial buyer. Uh, so you see the demand from new players. You've seen the overall uh, uh, acceptance of this uh, asset class saying that it stood up uh, uh, a pandemic pretty well. You know, tenants were not lost. Uh, collections were uh, as they should be even in normal times. Then it, it gave a few points, I think, uh, for the industrial uh, uh, backwind in general. Uh, and you could really see it in, in this uh, kind of a portfolio transaction. Yeah, I, sh- I should have uh, mentioned general comment, but on that point, pricing in the space is, you know, pretty significantly surpassed where we were even pre-COVID, which was a really, obviously still really good environment. But again, all that new capital and obviously the, the debt capital markets, you know, we it's, I like to call it a circular reference where the lenders have fewer places where they can they can place their money, right? They're just naturally more risk averse. So industrial makes a lot of sense. Uh, operating fundamentals are good, good there and they have been historically. So lenders are leaning in on their terms <clears throat> to, to place money in the sector. And so buyers can pay more, but right? that component of the capital stack's cheaper. So they can they can then lean in when they're when they're buying something. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, I think that it's not only from the capital market standpoint that there's more uh, demand and it, make, it makes that uh, imbalance that you uh, mentioned, but it's also when real fundamentals are changing. Uh, the need to serve uh, consumers has really changed. Uh, the amount of essential products that are being expected now to get to your front door, uh, the fight between the big uh, e-commerce companies and retailers really uh, on the uh, on the heart of the consumer. Uh, that's changing too. And uh, I think one of those, uh, of course, Amazon is the um, pacemaker and the leader, especially what we saw in uh, 2020 for last mile facilities has doubled its amount of last mile facilities from 160 to 320. And they went out of, with uh, uh, and said they're going to do 1,000 more of last mile facilities in the next upcoming years. And I think Vadim and Ohad, we just saw a deal in, in Philadelphia where Amazon took a last mile facility that we would think is non-functional for Amazon as we see them usually, even in last mile facilities, using 22, 24, 32 clear height, taking uh, an old 1960s, 1970s, building 17 clear height uh, and signing a lease for 12 years. 
So uh, I'll ask you, uh, uh, Vadim, why do you think uh, uh, they would really take on such, an, uh, uh, such a list? Is this lack of supply? Is this the functionality is enough for them? What's your take on this? I think there is two sides to that uh, story. The first side, and this is kind of the obvious one, uh, this is the lack of supply, you know, very hard to find uh, well-located properties uh, in those uh, areas such as Philly, such as Dallas, such as Atlanta, the growing uh, cities, and uh, the gateway cities. And, uh, you know, for them, to, when, when you're already finding uh, something like that, you want to secure that because uh, in the end of the day, it serves your term, it, it serves your purpose. So uh, I guess this is this is more the obvious uh, side of that. And the second side, in my mind, you know, this is probably specula speculation because I'm not uh, I'm not working at Amazon, but I'm trying to you know to think the way that they think. They have a lot of orders or a lot of uh, things to provide in a very short uh, uh, time frame. And they need if they need a space, they need it right away. Usually. They need it. Uh, they understand they need the space, and then they try and go and 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 look for a space. And if there is no available space, this is their only option. They will still take it, although it's not as as they want it as as they might want it to be. They might want it to be as uh, with 32 right or 28 or whatever. But it's still fu functional enough for their needs, and this is why they are willing to take it. And even for long term, because location is not changing over time. It might, but it probably it's going to be still a good location to serve the last mile need. Mm -hmm. You know, it reminds me when we took uh, one of our Amazon uh, facilities and we came in, I think it was uh, 2 p.m. into the warehouse to tool and it was empty. And we, we thought, oh, nobody orders an e-commerce. And then we asked the store manager and he said, everything's gone. I mean, if something needs to be same day, it's gone by 2 p.m. Otherwise, it won't get to your doorstep by 5. And, uh, and therefore, those facilities don't really need that, uh, that ceiling height because it's in and out. And um, it's interesting because the functionality of those warehouses, the ugly, uh, uh, older warehouses, they were treated, and you, you, know, you know that well, Nick, and interesting to see what you think about that. It wasn't the what it is looking at today. When you see an old uh, uh, Fulton Industrial Warehouse, forty thousand square feet, uh, that that's not two years ago, three years ago. That that wouldn't be. Oh, it's so cool! It's a micro fulfillment center. It's a last mile center. You know those buzzwords really give uh, a different name uh, uh, to that. And I don't think it's just capital markets. I also think it's uh, fundamentals. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. No, I think. Um Oh, it's all good points. Yeah, the for that style of building for Amazon, the the functionality of the building isn't as important as the location because what they're trying to do is is fully integrate all of the deliveries over time. So their their typical model historically has been they get it to a certain point in their supply chain and then they basically hand it off to FedEx, not anymore, but FedEx, UPS, USPS, and they do the partial delivery to your house. That piece of the supply chain is very expensive. It's estimated that it could be, you know, 200 or $2.50 $2 per package, which if you think about, you know, individual package, it's expensive. Um, they're internalizing all of that. And so 
it's a bit of a land grab for them. Um, you know, they need these really you know tucked in locations close to a lot of their their consumers. And Amazon, I think we all know this, but Amazon has a ton of data on everybody. Um, there's a lot of Prime members, and so it sounds weird to say it, but the product flowing through this warehouse, they sort of know what is going to be ordered before it's ordered. Um, you know, they, they can look at particular areas of zip codes and they know, you know, there's going to be, I don't know, 30 tubes of toothpaste ordered today. And so each individual building is sort of specific to a particular zip code or area. And so that's why, I mean, like you guys are saying, the clear height's not important. Um, and really the, like the, the building functionality, the building itself is as important as it is. They need like lower covered sites where they can, they can park vans. Um, I'm sure everyone's seen these Amazon Sprinter vans now. You know, they're used to seeing FedEx and USPS or UPS and USPS, which obviously are still out there, but Amazon's starting to do all their own deliveries. So they need areas to park the vehicle. So what we're seeing is lower coverage, you know, uh, sites, where they can park vans, clear height doesn't matter as much, products flowing through the space. Um, and if you can check some of those boxes, Amazon's gonna be very interested. You're, you're, you're right, I mean, they're just, they're basically just just starting to roll out their their last mile uh, or prototype, which is called AMZLs. They're doing a lot of, trying to do a lot of build a suits, but it's hard to find 30 acres of close-in land in a lot of these MSAs. So they're taking second gen facilities and rehabbing them um, and it still works for what they need. You know, I think that niche of smaller warehouses, what we like to call last mile or urban distribution facilities, uh, still has maybe, you know, personally I think, uh, a pretty interesting opportunity um, because um, the capital markets, the large institutions don't really go on and buy those 40, 50,000 square feet facilities. Uh, and, and they look for that portfolio, and you know the competition uh, uh, you're seeing. Uh, uh, you know when you trade those uh, portfolios, if it's you know with uh, overseas investors and institutionals. Um, but nobody really takes the time um, really to aggregate those uh, smaller uh, warehouses, and you know, and, and that's why we try to do that because we feel that cap rates are not compressed as they are. Uh, the opportunity, the fundamentals are the same. It's part of the supply chain, but the uh, uh, but the capital markets pressure is still lower, uh, and and we see that still as as, as the uh, opportunity. I want to ask um, um, Allison now that we see rates really um, Treasury is still pretty very low historically, mm-hmm. and you know I'm thinking late 2018 we took really like 200 basis points more in our, in our loans, the, the environment was different. How do you decide uh, if you could really uh, let uh, a sponsor absorb that difference in, uh, uh, in spread? I mean, how do you price that out? How do you think about that? Because it sounds like even though there's a, a lot of demand from the capital market side and cap rates are going down, uh, interest rates are not always going down as much as the spread has uh, uh, went down. I mean, how, how do you see that? And uh, I know it's a customer by customer thing. Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's, it's, there's a range of pricing for every asset type. Um, and it's based on sponsor, leverage, cash flow, all the, the normal fundamentals. Um, in terms of why it hasn't 
really compress that much. I think it's just there's so much uncertainty in the world. And as I think Nick may have said, banks are somewhat risk adverse, probably the most risk adverse. And so uncertainty brings cost and it makes banks have to carry their capital in different ways, provisioning for losses. And so our capital just gets more expensive so that you don't get to experience the same compression of spreads when there's so much uncertainty in a market. Mm -hmm. And then the floors, then as you mentioned before, the floors, um, you know, right in the beginning of the pandemic, they were probably 100 basis points easily across the board. And as things settled down a little bit, they've come in, but we're still seeing 25 to 50 basis points on floors. Whereas before the pandemic, you know, we could put it. Yeah, we put a zero floor in just to make sure we didn't have a negative interest rate. And sometimes you could get 25 basis points, but. You know, it wasn't common. They're very nobody common talked now. about it before. You know, like nope. uh, neg- negative uh, interest rate. Negative interest rates. Yeah, right. I, I mean, nobody <laughs> thought about it. Or, or yeah, interest rate at uh, at zero. I remember that. Zero. Oh, right. We had a zero flow in a you know facility. We didn't even know that. Nobody imagined uh, uh, such a thing can uh, can happen. You know, right. one more um, um, demand driver that uh, I think is interesting. Um, um, I read about one of the researchers. Uh, a CBA research that was talking about uh, reverse logistics. And I think that's an underestimated uh, a demand driver for industria. And the reason is, is it's really 30% of our packages are being returned. Uh, some of those retailers out there like Sappos, that's part of the strategy to, uh, you know, to bring you shoes and to, so you can buy shoes and, cho- and choose and, and send them out. Um, and 30% of that product going back, this thing has to go through something somewhere. And if you have a last mile facility that is, uh, uh, that the products are known exactly what they should be, just as Nick said, Amazon knows most of what is going to be sold uh, because they have their prediction models. Uh, what happens if you, get a, if you get a shirt and you don't want that shirt anymore? Uh, you don't want it because you just don't like it. Uh, maybe it's not a good fit. Maybe it's defect uh, or any other reason. Uh, so companies just don't know how to take that thing uh, from you and where should they uh, send it to. And, and in that research, uh, the main claim is that those last mile facilities, those that we talked about, their functionality is good, but not as good as the modern with the lower clear height are really, really suitable to get that reverse logistics uh, back. Because when you don't know what you're gonna collect from the consumer, how do you know how you're gonna stack it? I mean, how do you know how you're gonna sort it? Uh, do you t- take it back to the supply chain bloodstream or do you uh, send it out to uh, disposal? Um, and I don't know if how much uh, we saw in the market, but maybe Vadim, uh, what can you say your take is uh, uh, on that? I mean, out of, and, and, and you have a lot of tenants that uh, you see, how many do you really see that phenomenon coming in? Because if it's not, we're going to start seeing that demand really coming in, especially as e-commerce sales arrive. Yeah. I think that, first of all, we need to understand maybe a, a bit the difference between the last mile product to, uh, uh, to, the, to the more bulk product or the big boxes. The big boxes has essentially one use, to, distrib- to distribute product, uh, fulfill and distribute while last mile have multiple use it's you know last mile it's a magic word but but essentially if you try to break it down last mile could be a yoga place it could be a gym it could be a, a whatever whatever business you might it could be a showroom or whatever business it, you it, high, highest and best use 
is how we call it in the uh, in the real estate industry. Uh, so just based on that, you have higher the higher potential demand from other tenants that are not essentially on the e-commerce side. They can do some other stuff uh, not related whatsoever to internet or, uh, or e-commerce or just because the location works for their need and the, the immediate uh, uh, residents are using that space for whatever they are using for. Uh, so if I'm looking you know, on the deals that we are buying also other, other players as well, uh, they, might buy, they might buy acquire last mile facility but it doesn't mean that the tenant will do actually e-commerce or last mile. So if you try to break down those tenants, uh, you're gonna see a lot of different tenants that not necessarily doing last mile or e-commerce, but out of the tenants that are doing e-commerce, I do think, and I definitely agree that reverse uh, logistic is just at the beginning of it because a lot of those players still, <coughs> I, I, I wouldn't call it fail, but I think educating ourselves there's them themselves on the way uh, to better understand the trends and how is it gonna work though the, the big guys the amazons are you know they have their big data ai whatever prediction prediction models that they're using uh, uh, but the smaller guys doesn't don't really have it so they need to adapt and learn on the way so uh, just to summarize uh, it's very hard to understand what Will be the tailwind for that, but I, it's it's very easy to understand that there will be a tailwind for that. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, you I can say, to, to jump in quickly. Whoever can figure that out, reverse logistics, <laughs> will be a very wealthy person because that's. I mean, it's clear. It's clear that I mean, even Amazon struggles with it, right? Where they've now partnered with Kohl's, I think, just to give people sort of a an outlet to go, you know, obviously go physically to somewhere and and make the return. Um, to try to send something back upstream, you know, it, it, you've got to take a bunch of different stops for a package to arrive at your front door and then try to try to reverse that and get it, get it back to where it needs to be. It just, it's a dish, it, incremental cost. And for some of the products we're talking about they're the margins very low to begin with. And so that's often why you, you hear e-commerce isn't, is not a, a you know, large margin business that that's a big component of it is, uh, is the reverse logistics. You know, if, if to judge according to what's happening in my house, and I think it's more than 30%. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it's like Nick said, it's how to figure out logi uh, um, reverse logistics. I think it's also how to figure out best mile, because even if you look at Amazon, which is clearly the leader uh, in that arena, um, I think we bought one of their first experimental uh, last mile facilities uh, in Memphis, and that was only two years ago. Only two years ago, that was their experiment in trying to bring direct-to-consumer building. And now they're talking about putting a thousand of these, or even more so, in the next coming years. So if Amazon is still figuring it out, it clearly shows that a lot of the other companies are still figuring it out. And there's some fundamentals that we are starting to learn that are more relevant than, than others uh, in choosing the right location. And like Nick said, I think Lend uh, has become much more uh, important additional end uh, uh, than than it used to be before, um, because when you look at a last mile and a place that goes a lot uh, in and out, then you need a, a much greater interval between. It's not like five uh, um, trucks a day uh, uh, type of uh, uh, facility. It's a much more heavier uh, operation, and because of that, location becomes more important. You know, it's not just important to be in a good industrial park. 
with good uh, access to uh, to rail. It needs to be, uh, you know, main in main sometimes, uh, especially when you track those Amazon facilities because they want to be as close as they can be to the centers of population. And then comes the question: Okay, what about other fundamentals like Lee Height and so on? So you mentioned the uh, uh, the building in Philadelphia, and that's what we see. You know, at the end, those buildings are, are getting emptied on a daily basis, and if they do, they don't need to stay high. There's no uh, long-term inventory management uh, for those facilities. Um, so uh, that's kind of the trends that we see. We see uh, um, more uh, emphasis on location uh, that's being driven by uh, proximity to uh, consumers, more lend to building ratio, uh, and less kind of uh, uh, what the clear height should be. I know in the past, uh, maybe 20 investment committees we had uh, during 2020, and saw really buildings uh, in, in many markets from Houston to New Jersey and Atlanta and, and, and second tier markets like Memphis and Cincinnati. Um, and we see price really differ a lot. We see the 100 bucks per foot in, in a rich market like Houston and we see the 30 and 40 bucks per foot in Memphis. At what point do you say, this is a red flag, I'm not willing to pay so much per foot, just doesn't make a sense. What are you thinking uh, uh, when you're looking at a price per foot that's becoming too rich? I think that um, it really drives from the, uh, the location. Uh, uh, we've see, I've seen a deal that was traded in, in Seattle, I think early this year, for over 550 bucks a foot. Um, you know, it, it clearly makes sense to, uh, to someone to pay those numbers. Uh, and, and, and I think that, that kind of uh, what drives it at the end when you value the location so much, you are willing to pay more than the replacement cost per se, or more than the just uh, um, you know uh, a market or submarket average. It's becoming uh, the asset class becoming more like retail. It's uh, how much am I willing to pay for this corner, rather than I just need to get to have a, a good warehouse in a, in a logistics park. Um, when we buy assets, we always track okay, what should be the comparable uh, uh, replacement cost. How much land is available in the vicinity of where we're trying to buy the assets? Because if there's no no availability of land at all, then it's really hard to de- determine what is the actual replacement cost for a building like that, because it cannot be replaced. Um, so, and another phenomenon that we see, you know, in, in in when you search that is that communities, especially infield communities, you know, with, where you see population growth, they don't want to have industrial buildings and trucks getting into their Backyards. So uh, even if you have tract of land to rezone to zone it to industrial or to to try to approve a project, you see that time that that uh, process sometimes take a lot of time or not really happening. Uh, so there's a real chase about getting those corners and kind of like everything relates to this story of the Amazon in Philadelphia. It's how to build a less mile facility right now in Philadelphia because of uh, uh, available land uh, entitlement process takes a lot of time. Uh, and Vadim touched on it. Uh, and it's just, uh, um, it's hard to find the right place. So with that notion, I'll ask Nick, do you see redevelopment of malls? Do you see multi-story uh, industrial facilities, submitting plans? I mean, do you see creative ways of generating more demand in infill locations? Yeah, I mean, so the, the mall or retail things been talked about for a couple of years now. We've seen it actually come to fruition in a couple circumstances where 
you've got a one-off Costco or a Lowe's um, that's vacant that uh, gets readapted to an industrial use. The challenge with that stuff is municipality doesn't really want it. You know, um, like Ohad was saying, like you're going to get a lot of neighborhood pushback. The municipalities would prefer the retail use where you, you get sales taxes derived from retail where you, you don't necessarily get that in industrial and it's just perceived to be a dirtier use. So is it possible? For, for sure. Like we, it's happened. Um, there was a deal in Southern California that was an old Costco and it was fortunate because it was in an industrial overlay and they got a variance for retail for the Costco. And so it was able to revert back to industrial use and that deal traded Amazon took it and, and traded sub four. So um, there's tenant demand and clearly the capital markets um, are fine with it. Um, the question is, how do you, can you get to the real estate is, is the main question. So I think that it's, it's possible, but it's, it's not easy. And then full scale, like a redevelopment of a mall is a sort of a, it's a can of worms uh, for a lot of the same reasons, but to try to, I'm just to try to re redevelop, like leave the existing structure and redevelop them all. I think that's very challenging, um, but it's, you know, there's been several circumstances where malls, there's been a defunct mall and developers have bought it and just raised it for industrial for the right location. So that's, you know, not anything, not saying anything or shattering, but that's, that's happened in the past. As in, did you see any of your clients um, asking or to, to uh, are trying to uh, get finance for such redevelopments? Uh, uh, um, we have, we've, like Nick said, it's been talked about for a while. We've heard, you know, malls have to have some reuse and typically a mall has good real estate. It's usually located near an interstate and close to the, you know, the population center. But I have not yet seen a redevelopment of a full mall. And I think Nick's right. It would probably have to be raised before you could. So it would have to be truly an infill location where there was no other land opportunities. I think that also other limitations <laughs> are, are, are prohibiting from happening. It's the city that doesn't want that to wreck the, uh, the beauty of that, of that area. Right. Uh, the trucks. Because, yeah. The trucks, uh, taxes. It's mm-hmm. just not, uh, people don't want to go out of their homes and just see an industrial facility, even though they look pretty nice, the new ones. Uh, <laughs> but it's not, it's not the, uh, it's not the malls, um, uh, anymore, and I think that stats show that only 14 million square feet was redeveloped uh, of malls, uh, and most of it was not the, was not used the same structure. It was they wreck it down and mm-hmm. they build something new. And where we do see that, where it's not wrecked down, it's usually just used for the parking spaces. We see many of those, in, but even Cincinnati. Uh, so, uh, but I'm going to ask you a question, maybe you know, towards the end of our session, um, thinking more about the future. We see tremendous hype and uh, a demand for capital markets and tenants um, in, in a few markets, if it's uh, Southern California and Dallas and Atlanta and uh, New Jersey. Uh, why do you think that's happening for those markets specifically? And do you see that uh, going on for them for the next five years? Yeah, so in, in the end of the day, it's all driven by, you know, on a, on a bigger screen, scheme of things, it's all driven by population growth. The cities that are uh, growing faster. Uh, there is also, by the way, a correlation between the density in terms of population per square mile uh, uh, to the actual rent. You know, if you compare the population per square mile uh, in, in, in California, 
uh, and the rents in California, com you compare it to Atlanta, you're gonna see more or less very similar uh, uh, difference between the rents as you can see between the, uh, the average population per square mile, uh, the density population per square mile. So I think that those cities will gain the most out of uh, 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 the last mile in those cities will gain the most out of, the, of this population growth. But this is one side of the story. The second side of the story, those are the cities that are uh, the lowest cap rate with the lowest cap rates. And there is a reason for that. This is exactly the reason uh, I just heard uh, probably a month ago. And this is I'm not sure if it, even if it's a, a public uh, published, I just a word that's going through the brokers that there was a deal uh, that was public market by CB that were closed at, 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 at a cap rate that begins at two, uh, which is crazy, you know, crazy cap rates. Never, no one even, uh, you know, uh, thought that it would get there, but it's getting there. Uh, so I, I, gotta say, I heard Bruce uh, Flat, uh, Brookfield's uh, CEO, saying a few months ago that as interest rate uh, came down, he said, this is going to be Europe. Just wait a few months and cap rates will be in the twos. <laughs> Um, maybe that's the beginning of it. Yeah, maybe, you know, no, no one knows. It's very hard to predict that because I, if you would ask me uh, two years ago where the interest rate will be, uh, I, I would not tell you that <laughs> <laughs> on that level, that's for sure. Uh, but per your question, I think that those, uh, the gateway cities with the population growth uh, will gain the most. And uh, also in those kind of locations, you need to be smart on understanding the, the market dynamics. You need to be smart on understanding what are, what are, what is a good micro location with, uh, versus uh, not uh, as good micro location. And uh, you had mentioned that as well as to replacement cost. Uh, replacement cost something that's very important that uh, you know to, to to look at to look on when you are uh, acquiring a building. But at some places, such as LA, for example, uh, replacement cost is just a theoretical discussion. Uh, it's it's not uh, 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 it's not it's probably could not happen because uh, there is no available land at, at, at those locations where the rent growth is uh, 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 higher than seven eight ten percent a year sometimes. Um, so I think the dynamics are changing between the cities and the locations, but overall the big cities with the population growth will gain out of that. No, even though those uh, cities are really uh, growing so much. Um, I think that uh, we see uh, some of the um, headwinds for industrial also happening in those same cities. And uh, uh, Nick, you and I talked about that in the past, and maybe you can share a little bit of your thoughts. Uh, there's some oversupply, uh, um, maybe not immediately, even though I think Houston is one of those uh, areas uh, people need to, to be more careful. Uh, I mean, do you see oversupply as a prominent risk for bulk distribution in industrial real estate? Yeah, I mean, in, in pockets. And to go back to the previous question, why SoCal and Northern Jersey perform so well, it's because it's really hard to find land. I mean, whether it be for bulk product or, or something that's really infill, um, there's not many outlets. There's not many for low cost options because it's so dense in those markets. So, you know, in Northern Jersey, a lot of people have had to go to uh, Lehigh Valley, Eastern PA, and that's sort of that's sort of been the uh, the low cost option, but that's also gotten really tight. So that's what's driving rent growth in those markets, um, where there could be a little bit of softness, and we've seen it in the market like in Atlanta. You know, it's a, it checks a lot of boxes. It's a it's a huge MSA. 
um, certainly considered a primary market, sort of the hub of the Southeast for industrial. Um, and the, the population, it's in the Sunbelt, population growth story is great. A lot of corporate reloads and you know, just a lot of population growth here. So um, that being said, if you look at Atlanta on a map, I mean, once you get 30, 40 miles outside of Atlanta, there's some land. So the, the light industrial, info light industrial sort of last mile segment is, you know, I would say relatively secure from, from oversupply um, because it's hard to find sites. A lot of developers don't, don't really want to spend a lot of capital too. It's a, uh, it's a tougher use of time. The return on time is pretty low on something like that to build 150,000 feet. Um, it takes the same amount of time to build a million feet. You get, it's a bigger development fee for the developer and it's a bigger equity check for the capital source. So people are letting sort of that, the capital markets, uh, the capital markets drive those decisions. And so there's been pockets like, not to pick on 85 Northeast, but um, as you go further up 85 in Atlanta, you're heading towards South Carolina. There's, I mean, there's a ton of land up there. And so you're always going to be able to find a site to build 500,000 feet to a million feet. And that's very much a, like a regional distribution location. So there was, you know, there were times over the last call it year and a half where a lot of developers built pretty similar products um call it the 500,000 to a million feet commodities locations like really similar locations not differentiated and uh the tenant demand waned um there just weren't a lot of a lot of tenants in, in that particular submarket. so i think you can see that sense changed i think by the end of the quarter here the majority of that stuff may be may get leased but um there there can be softness in some low barrier to entry submarkets. Um, and that, that it's, it's, I'm less, I'll be less worried in the short, medium term about just like, like serious headwinds in general in the industrial space. But I would just say it's a little bit more located to like, or, or tied to micro location in some market. Mm -hmm. Got it. So uh, last topic uh, uh, for you, Had, um, I guess you can't really have a conversation uh, in today's investment world without really talking about ESG. And we see that uh, uh, responsible investing is something that uh, is becoming integrated in, uh, in the institutional investors' decisions to make an investment with a sponsor. So uh, interested for you to share with us, how do you really see, let's talk more about the E, the environment, uh, in the day-to-day -day operation, if it's green energy or any other things that uh, you would think about uh, when conducting business? You know, it's, it's a vast topic. And, and like you said, I think that's kind of a, the, uh, as much as people like to say, uh, uh, less my people like to say uh, uh, going green or, or ESG, uh, it's definitely becoming more than a buzz, though. It, it really drills down and trickles down, I think, uh, to what we see in the field. And companies, bigger companies, they, uh, um, they take it pretty seriously. You know, for instance, we own uh, um, um, a facility uh, where Nike is a tenant. And Nike there, um, they perceive themselves as a, as a uh, going green type of company. Um, and, and they put a lot of uh, e, ESGE type of uh, improvements, whether it's solar mushrooms or solar panels and uh, climate control uh, uh, improvements and, and kind of a natural light into the buildings to improve uh, its uh, uh, consumption. Uh, so you see that uh, um, all throughout. 
Um, you don't see that a lot uh, in the last mile or light industrial type facilities uh, for, for the main reasons of these buildings were built in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And back then, the bones uh, could care less if it's uh, uh, efficient or not. So people try to do, okay, so what can we bring or what value or what uh, environmental value we can bring to the buildings? So the, I think the immediate suspect that comes into mind uh, is, is using solar energy. Um, and what you see, especially in the, the New Jersey area, and you see that a lot also in California, the two states that are very uh, are supportive and, and subsidizing uh, solar to a certain extent. Uh, when you fly over in New Jersey, you see most of the industrial roofs have solar panels on them. Uh, and this is something that, that we at Fairpoint are trying to do the same and offer our tenants uh, uh, the ability to go green and go clean energy um, and, and to, uh, not to our surprise, but it's always nice to see that even if you don't offer your tenant a giant uh, uh, saving in cost, tenants want to have, tenants want to be aggressive on, on going to clean energy, even if it costs the same money, because companies, small and big, are trying to go more uh, environmental conscious. So I think that's a, that's a trend that will probably trickle down from the bigger ones, from the Nikes and the Amazons that, that you know, uh, they really uh, uh, put it out there to even smaller companies. Uh, uh, they, they just do, want to do the right thing. Uh, um, and when in places where it makes a lot of economical sense, then even more so. Um, to name a few other than just solo, you know, uh, uh, what we do is that we take every building that we have and, and replace the lights immediately with LEDs. Uh, um, so that is something that also improves it a little bit. Uh, we take good look in, in uh, the building systems, whether it's HVACs or, or heaters or stuff like that, uh, and try to see if we can uh, put some more, uh, 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 more convenient, less uh, messy systems uh, to, uh, to make a win-win, you know, less consumption for the tenant uh, and, and more kind of a, a green signature for our, for our efforts as well. So just kind of to sum it up, um, it's, you're starting to see it more and more. It trickles down from the bigger companies to the smaller companies. Uh, and it's definitely a thing uh, that will be discussed, I think, uh, in the next couple of years. Definitely. Uh, we see that, uh, as you said, New Jersey and, and California is just really giving amazing opportunities. I think there's an overall theme of owners uh, caring more for the tenants and from uh, uh, the, uh, the panel we had before, we think of tenants and their operation caring more about their clients. Uh, it's not that the owners do real estate and the tenants do the operation. There's an uh, interdisciplinary approach uh, that's uh, changing and uh, uh, we're really uh, welcoming that. So guys, this has been uh, uh, very interesting. Uh, it seems that there's exciting times for, uh, uh, for people in our, uh, in our industry. Um, so thank you so much for uh, joining and participating in our panel.